Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we bow and we humble our hearts before your throne in heaven. And we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. As our eyes see the words that you inspire to be written on the page, we pray, Father, that our hearts would hear your voice and that you would change us and that you would conform us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We begin a series this morning in the book of Esther. And the point of this book, when taken as a whole, is that God's purposes are fulfilled through God's providence. Let me say that again. God's purposes are fulfilled through God's providence. Providence simply meaning God's ordering or God's arranging of all things. And the the backdrop to this story is a frowning providence. A hundred years before Esther in 586 BC, the Jews had been exiled from Judah and taken as slaves to Babylon. The Persians later on defeated the Babylonians in 539 BC and they, they gave the exiled Jews permission to return home to Judah, to, to rebuild Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that had been decimated years before. Some of the Jews returned and others of the Jews stayed. And Esther and Mordecai were born to parents who had chosen to stay in the land of their captivity. But despite the fact that Jerusalem had been the center of God's operations for years and years, God was still at work. God was still working his plans and his purposes out in the world through his providence, even in the land of the Jews' captivity and exile. But the question I've got to answer for us here in this point in the the message is why, why Esther? Why this book of the Bible for this time in this local church today? Well, friends, we have more in common with Esther than at first we might realize. See, Esther was far from her spiritual home, Jerusalem. We are far from our home in heaven. Esther had only heard of God's miraculous 
powers. We live in one of those stretches, those long stretches of redemptive history in which miracles are few and far between. But much more importantly, significantly than that, Esther was called to trust her God even when she didn't know what God was doing. If you've heard a sermon series through Esther before, or if you just read the book of Esther before, uh, you'll know that really the shocking fact about the book of Esther is that the name of God is not mentioned once. Not one time. And so what that means is there is never a point in the book of Esther where we read the words, and the word of the Lord came to Esther. There's no prophetic dream. There's no prophetic vision. There's no angelic messenger who comes to Esther with a word from God. Well, friends, that is where we live. When you turn in for the night, you don't get a digest of the day from God or from some angelic messenger. You don't get an infallible uh, prophecy of what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, There's no angel that sits you down and says, okay, now, listen, when your dog threw up all over your carpet because he is such a muppet, he thought it would be a good idea to eat the top of your fireproof glove that you need for your log burner. What you thought was happening there was dot, 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 but actually what was, no, and obviously that was a purely imaginary scenario, but no, we just live by faith. We're called to live by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We're called to to live by faith that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes even when we don't know what his purposes are. And so may God be pleased to use this book then to assure us of that truth. Now listen, the, the primary purpose that God fulfilled through Esther, through all of these providences, was the preservation of the Jewish people. Uh, God had promised that the Christ would be born in the line of Abraham and Esther and Mordecai were the means by which the Jewish people would be saved from annihilation. Esther and Mordecai saved the Jews. The Christ was born years later and we are the recipients of his salvation today. But God's work on earth is not yet done. That's why we're still here. That's why we're not in heaven yet. There are further plans. There are further purposes for God to fulfill in and through us, his body, the church. And therefore, we need to learn to trust. We need to learn when our eyes feel blinded to God's providence and work in the world and to trust his sovereign hand and to trust his infinitely wise mind and to lean on his compassionate heart that is working all things together for our good and for his eternal glory in the end. That's why we need the book of Esther. And so we're going to be looking today at Esther 1 and 2 that Peter read for us and we're going to see this. God uses the weak to confound the strong. God uses the weak to confound the strong. If you like making notes in sermons, there would be the title for us today. God uses the weak to confound the strong. And we're going to see number one, Ahasuerus the strong and Esther and Mordecai the weak. But if you are taking notes, I want you to write those words, the weak and the strong in quotation marks. Because here in Esther 1 and 2, all is not as it seems. 
Number one then, Ahasuerus the strong. The book of Esther opens and we are introduced to the most powerful man on planet Earth. Esther 1 verse 1 tells us that Ahasuerus reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, that's modern day Pakistan, to northern Sudan, a kingdom that spanned just over 3,000 miles. And as the curtain of the story of the book of Esther begins to lift, we find that we're also guests at a feast, but not just any feast, a feast in which the richest man in the world spared no expense, cut no corners, and threw a party that was to end all other parties. It lasted 180 days. Why? Well, verse 3 gives us the tip off. It says, in the third year of his reign. And we know from history that that was when Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, as your Bible might put it, that's just the Greek pronunciation or spelling of his name, that's when Ahasuerus was gearing up to go to war with the Spartans, the Greeks. If you've ever seen that weird kind of naff movie 300. The war in that film was the exact war that Ahasuerus was preparing for in that moment. And so it very much seems that Ahasuerus was throwing this lavish feast so as to say to his troops and then later to all of the people of his kingdom, fight for me, side with me, and this life will be yours. Conquer in my name, and this will be the life waiting for you when you return. And Ahasuerus could actually follow through on that promise. Remember, he was the richest man in the world at the time. A hundred years from this very moment here in Esther chapter 1, Alexander the Great would conquer Persia. And the history books tell us that as Alexander the Great made his way into the great palace of Persia here in Susa the citadel, he was dazzled. He was Stunned, overwhelmed to find 220, uh, 270 tons of minted gold coins and 1,200 tons of silver. But all was not as it seemed. Because although Ahasuerus was the picture of power here in Esther chapter 1 and 2, in reality, Ahasuerus was a portrait of weakness. His strength was 3,000 miles wide and one inch deep. What do I mean? Why do I say that? Well, Esther chapter one tells us that he was morally weak. He was encouraging drunkenness among his men and all of the debauchery that goes along with that. Not only that, he was a prisoner of his passions, both of anger and of lust. When his wife, Vasti, refused to be fawned over, by a room full of drunken men, instead of realizing how stupid his request had been, he thought it was a good idea to try to legislate respect and lordship across his whole kingdom. Men, uh, do just let me point out, the government can't secure respect for you. That's something that you have to earn yourself. And the fact that he had a harem at all, never mind with a 12-month beautifying process, tells us here was a man enslaved to his sex drive. So you, you put it all together, and what do you get? Well, you get a man with power flowing out of his ears who couldn't lead his heart or his home. Several years ago, there was a, a picture online that went crazy viral. Uh, it was taken by a young woman who lives in Brazil, and she went to visit her, her grandma one day. Her grandma is a, a devout Roman Catholic, and her sort of saint 
that she would look at every day with St. Anthony. So there, high up in this position of promise, was this little figurine of St. Anthony. Gabriella goes to her house one day. She's looking at this figurine. She can see that he, he looks very saintly. He's got this pious expression on his face. He's, he's wearing this brown robe. But then Gabriella notices that his ears are pointy. And so she pulls out her phone. She does a bit of digging around. And eventually she says, Grandma, th- this isn't St. Anthony. This is Elrond of Rivendell from the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and do, you, do you see what had happened there? What had thought to have been one thing turned out to be something very, very different. And here in Ahasuerus' case, he was thought to have been one thing. But in reality, he was something very, very different. What are we to make of all of this today then? What does this mean for us today? Well, friends, here's at least one answer to that question. Do not put your trust in kings or in princes or in prime ministers or in MPs or in any worldly or earthly or even spiritual leaders in the world. It is not so much that power corrupts and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Instead, its power exacerbates the corruption already within. And when masses of power meets masses of corruption, masses of damage is done. Think the Pharaoh in Exodus. Think Herod in Matthew's gospel. Think Stalin or Mussolini or Hitler or the dictators in Russia or in China or in North Korea today that are like a cancer to their people. Put not your trust in kings. Put not your trust in princes. Put your trust in King Jesus instead. Jesus was and and is unlike any king because Jesus' heart was unlike any other There was no corruption in Jesus' heart for power to exacerbate. That's why Jesus did what no other king has ever done. Die for his enemies to make his enemies the princes of his kingdom. You see the contrast here. Ahasuerus employed the full force of his power to wipe out his enemies. But Jesus used his power to favor his enemies. And Jesus poured himself out. Ahasuerus banished Queen Vasti for daring to say no to him. Jesus employed his power to die for sinners and to welcome them at his table. There's a contrast for us. Jesus made himself nothing. Jesus exchanged his royal robes for swaddling bands and his throne in heaven for a feeding trough in Bethlehem. He was born into a family of of refugees. He he worked as a carpenter in a backwater town. He used his power not for worldly comfort, but instead to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to forgive sin and eventually surrendered his life to death, even death on a cross. Why? For his enemies to be welcome at his table. If you're going to put your trust in someone, do not put your trust in yourself. Do not put your trust in kings. Put your trust in King Jesus instead. But now my guess is I'm, I'm probably preaching to the converted here. That when I said to you, do not put your trust in kings, most of you probably thought, yeah, don't worry, Hugh, I won't. So then what are we to do? Well, friends, at least this. Pray for kings and all in high places. Why? Because they can preserve our right to share the good news of King Jesus. That's why.
And since the book of Esther reminds us that in fact there is a higher throne, uh, there is a throne above all worldly thrones, uh, that there is a higher government over all worldly governments, and that there is power over all earthly powers. Why would we look to the worldly power when we can pray to the heavenly power? And to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth even as it's done in heaven. And since that probably won't happen by any of us marrying into parliament or to the royal family, let's just get the direct line to God instead and pray. And pray for kings and all in high places of authority. So we've thought about uh, Asuerus the strong, but then second, Esther and Mordecai the weak. Because whereas Esther chapter one began at the pinnacle of power, Esther chapter two brings us to the lowest rung on the societal ladder. Just stack it all up in your mind for a minute. Esther was a female, no equal rights back then. She was an orphan. Uh, Both her and Mordecai were Jews. And the anti-Semitism back in in that day, as it has been for much of human history, was such that Mordecai thought it was best for her to conceal her ethnic identity. And if that weren't enough, think about this. Esther was taken. Think about that word. Esther was taken. Look back at chapter 2, verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Esther was taken. Can you imagine how, how powerless, how, how vulnerable this young, orphaned, female Jew must have taken? And then how compromised, how, how used, how defiled she must have felt when she won Miss Persia and was then forced to sleep with a pagan Gentile king. So that yes, she went from the, the bottom of the ladder to the top rung of the ladder and became Miss Persia and became Queen of Persia overnight. But my guess is she would have preferred for that to have happened in a very different way. Nevertheless, God was at work. That behind the downfall of Vashti was the rise of Esther in and through God's sovereign hand. God had placed Esther and Mordecai in in just the right place at just the right time in order for God's purposes to be fulfilled. And so again, Esther chapter one and two, it shows us that not all is as it seemed because Ahasuerus looked strong, but in reality was weak. Esther and Mordecai looked extremely vulnerable and yet God Almighty was on their side, guiding them with his powerful hand over them, around them, underneath them, within them, leading them on according to his good and perfect purposes so that through them the strong would be confounded by the weak God brought Esther from the lowest place and put her in the highest place in order for the Jews to receive preservation well again friends from a human perspective who could have looked weaker than Jesus Christ 
The Bible tells us that he was despised and and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He too was a Jew. He was born to a teenage mother in poverty, under the shadow of Herod's hostility, raised in obscurity and died in agony. And yet following his humiliation came his exaltation and salvation. And friend, if God used Esther's humiliation to save the people, and if God used Jesus' suffering to save all people who will turn in repentance and faith to him, do you really think that God cannot use your suffering for a good and a perfect reason as well? It's interesting that God's question for Adam uh, in the garden was, where are you? And that man's question for God outside of the garden ever since has been, where are you? That's what some of you have been asking this, this week, isn't it? God, where are you in my home? God, where are you in my marriage where I'm married to this man whom I've loved for all of these years and he's never come to receive Christ? God, where, where are you in the, the face of my children who, who take all of my kindness for granted, screw it up and throw it in my face as hard as they can? Where are you, God, in my cancer? Where are you, God, in my turmoil? Where are you, God, in the loss of my friend? Where are you, God, in the loss of my mind? And God assures us all in his word that God is in the details, working all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. And friend, I can't tell you when God will make it plain, but God will make it plain in the end. And whether that's in this life or whether in that's in the life to come, answers are coming to those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. The question for us in the meantime then is, can we trust him? Can we trust him when there is no audible voice? Can we trust him when there is no angelic messenger? Can we trust him when there's no prophetic dream or or vision? A number of years ago, there was a really well-known pastor who'd been uh, scheduled to deliver a, a biographical sketch on the Puritan John Owen. If ever that was a task, that was a beefy one for you. And there was gonna be thousands of people at this conference. And so the problem was that he'd, he kind of mixed up his, his days and his times. So he went to bed one night, not realizing that when he woke up in the morning, he'd be expected to give this massive biographical sketch for all of these thousands of pastors. And then in the dead of night, the phone rings. And one of the conference organizers wakes him up at about one or two in the morning. And he says, I am so sorry to wake you, but my printer isn't working. Could you print your notes out for the biographical sketch that you're giving tomorrow? And then he heard it, tomorrow. And so he spent all night long getting himself together. You see what had happened there? There was a bad event. There was an unfortunate circumstance. And yet if that printer had been working, and if that conference organizer had 
called anyone else, that pastor would have been humiliated the day before. There was the bad event. Five seconds later, God made it plain. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes we have to wait. But friends, if we believe that God is good and that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, we can trust him either way. And friend, listen, perhaps you're here today and you're, you're not yet a Christian. You don't know who Ahasuerus is or who Queen Vashti was or anything like that. But maybe the suffering and hardship and pain in your life has brought you to a point in your life when for the first time you are actually open to hearing from God's word in the Bible. In your comfortable days, you never would have given God a second thought You never would have cared to hear anything about Jesus Christ or his plans and purposes for you at the cross and in his empty tomb. But now you're open because your suffering has brought you face to face with your mortality and to your impending appointment with God at his judgment seat on the day that you die. And friend, I just want to say to you, do not despise that hardship. Praise God for it. Because if it had never been for those hardships, you would have gone blissfully into a lost eternity and drop into hell itself. Friend, fall at the feet of Christ and clasp his feet and believe on him and crown him Lord of all and receive his salvation and you will be saved and join all of God's people in bowing before this sovereign God who can take all of the strands of your pain and hardship and work it all together for good in a glorious tapestry. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing together. Father, we do pray for the one, the two, the three among us today who hears all these words and yet does not have the hope of a sovereign God on their side. And Lord, we pray that they would come even now to Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you're able to use the weak to confound the strong. And Lord, we pray that you would use us, weak men and women in this day, to do great exploits for you, to the praise of the glory of the one who loved us, and gave himself for us. Help us, Lord, to trust him. Help us to trust his sovereignty. Help us to trust his wisdom and all of his plans for us, we pray in his name. Amen. 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 Would you